letter from the British government confirming that I renounced my British citizenship back in 1993. And I say to Bill Shorten, show it or shut up. Why doesn't he show his birth certificate? Why has he spent over $2 million in legal fees to keep this quiet and to keep this silent? Hello and welcome to the Monsoon Pod. My name is Dominic Harvey-Taylor. As you might have already figured out from the introduction and the title of this week's episode, today we are going to be talking about politics and nationality, how citizenship is documented, and how this can create controversy. The idea of dual citizenship is something that has intrigued me for a long time as an Australian who spent the first half of my life living overseas in Japan and the US. In 2017, dual citizenship became a bit of a political buzzword in Australia, as a seemingly endless string of politicians were forced to step down from their positions after it was discovered many of them were in breach of a little utilised section of the Australian constitution. In July 2017, a minor party senator resigned after discovering that they were a citizen of New Zealand. This triggered a bit of a domino effect as other politicians came under scrutiny from the media and their political opponents, and it became clear that a number of them could potentially be in the same boat. The main cause of the scandal was that it was discovered that many politicians were unaware of the fact that they possessed dual citizenship from countries like New Zealand and the UK, where the laws in those countries automatically granted citizenship by dissent. At the same time, some politicians had not done due diligence in getting the correct documentation in renouncing their citizenship. Fifteen sitting representatives were forced to resign. However, 40 different politicians were put under the microscope across all of the media reporting. A large underlying issue of this constitutional crisis arose from the fact that the government of the day was only hanging onto a majority in the House of Representatives by only a few members. If enough people could be knocked off as a result of Section 44, there was potential for the opposition to swing into power. While the dual citizenship saga in Australia is notable for how many politicians it embroiled, what is even more interesting to me is that this sort of debate and questioning of political opponents' legitimacy based upon their citizenship is not something that is limited to just one country. Almost simultaneously, a similar controversy was occurring in Japan around the same time. In 2016, the high-profile former news broadcaster and legislator Renho Murata became the first female leader of Japan's main opposition party, the Democratic Party. As well as being the first female leader, Renho was also the first leader of mixed heritage to take on the position. Renho's mother is Japanese, while her father is Taiwanese. During her campaign to become leader, she faced intense scrutiny from the media and political opponents over whether or not she had renounced her Taiwanese citizenship. Being a dual citizen is not illegal in Japan. However, the law requires dual citizens to choose one nationality or another by the age of 22. In practice, the Ministry of Justice has never actually issued a warning or stripped dual nationals of their citizenship. Renho's situation was made more complex due to the fact that Taiwan was historically a Japanese colony, but now is not recognized as a sovereign state. When running for the position of leader, Renho initially stated that she was Japanese from birth, but then later stated she legally became Japanese after renouncing her Taiwanese citizenship when she was 17 in 1985. In September of 2016, Renho gave a press conference in which she announced that despite her earlier claims of having renounced her Taiwanese citizenship, she had in fact not renounced it as she had initially believed, and instead was working to take care of the appropriate paperwork now. 
In the face of these developments, there were growing calls from parts of the media and politicians for Renhold to release her family registry document, what is called in Japanese the koseki, to put to rest any doubts over her dual national status. At this point, I should point out that while similar demands were made, for example, in Australia, with politicians demanding opponents to show birth certificates or letters renouncing their nationality, the request for Renhold to make her koseki public was much more controversial due to the history of the family registry system itself. To better understand the source of some of this controversy, I spoke to Emeritus Professor Tessa Morris Suzuki, a professor of modern Japanese history and Japanese minority groups from the ANU, about the significance of this document and its broader context in Japanese society. The Koseki is something that was introduced in the Meiji era when Japan started its modernization. So it's not a really ancient, you know, traditional practice. And it's a family register in which all members of the family are inscribed. It's different from a birth certificate because it places each individual very firmly in the family context. And it's organized in a way that is patriarchal. It emphasizes the role of the male members of the family. So it's less individual-based than a birth certificate. And it creates a number of issues. One set of issues comes in relation to women's position in the family. And the particular issue of controversy has been the fact that the Corsecki system has made it compulsory for women to take their husband's names, the husband's family names, in almost all circumstances. And that, particularly in, in recent years, has been quite controversial, with quite a lot of women you know, wanting to keep their own name or combine their, their name and their husband's name. And then the other issue is related to people who become Japanese, people who are not Japanese by birth. So the Koseki is also tied up with the way in which Japan grants citizenship, um, which is what is called in legal terms, yusanguinis. That means it's bloodline um, citizenship. So fundamentally, in order to become Japanese, you have to have Japanese parents. And actually, until the 1980s, you had to have a Japanese father. Uh, now you can inherit from your mother. But if you were born in Japan, that doesn't automatically give you the right to become Japanese. So the the lack of a koseki is a major way of distinguishing between insiders and outsiders. And it's become the basis for all sorts of forms of discrimination in modern Japanese history. At the same time that parts of the media, members of the government, and even some members of Renho's party were calling for her to publish her koseki, there were also civil rights groups and leaders and more liberal members of her party speaking out and cautioning Renho not to publish this document, as it would be seen as a dangerous precedent and return to how the document has been used to discriminate against marginalized groups in the past. When Taiwan and Korea became Japanese colonies, koseki systems were created for Koreans and Taiwanese, but they were separate from the Japanese koseki system. So in the colonial era, there were basically two sorts of koseki. There were what were called um, naichi koseki, that means koseki from people from sort of the main body of Japan, um, and separate koseki for people from the colonies. And after the end of the Asia-Pacific War, after Japan's defeat in war, and when Japan regained its independence after the post-war occupation, the Japanese government decided that people who had external colonial koseki would not be counted as Japanese anymore. So basically, Koreans and Taiwanese, who had been treated in international terms as Japanese before and during the war, 
were not Japanese anymore. Then, I mean, since then, um, quite a lot of Korean and Taiwanese people who are living in Japan long term have become naturalized Japanese citizens. And if you are a foreigner who becomes a naturalized Japanese citizen, or, you know, if you're a foreigner who marries a, a Japanese person without becoming a Japanese uh, citizen, you become <clears throat> inscribed in the, the koseki of the person that you marry. But it still creates a way of defining all sorts of differentiations between uh, Japanese and others. And, and it's also used uh, to some extent with internal discrimination against the group who are known as Hisabetsuburaku because the koseki were used in the past by potential employers or potential parents of spouses to check where people's families came from and to discriminate against people who were regarded as coming from this sort of what's sometimes referred to as an outcast group. When doing my own study of the history of the Koseki system and how it has been used to discriminate against various groups in the past, this last group of people Professor Moro Suzuki mentioned, the Hisabetsu Buraku, stood out to me in particular. This group has been very much at the forefront of the push to make Koseki information private. To better explain some of the context around how the Koseki has been used to discriminate against this group and others, I might take a bit of a detour and first explain a bit about who the Hisabetsu Buraku actually are. During the Tokugawa era in the 16 to 1800s, society adhered very much to a social hierarchy. Samurai were at the top, followed by peasants, artisans, and merchants. But below these sort of commoner classes, there existed an even lower strata of marginalized people, which included those known as eta and hinin, which are fairly derogatory terms which describe people who through hereditary were connected to undesirable occupations such as leatherworking, butchery, and street cleaning. People who fell into this outcast group were subject to a number of discriminatory laws and practices. Many formed communities on the outskirts of villages and towns. During the Meiji era, the Meiji government got rid of the social hierarchy system in one of their many reforms to modernize Japan. However, this did not end discrimination or indeed formal recognition of this outcast group. Those who were formerly Eta and Hinin were marked in their koseki as Shinheimin, a word meaning new commoner. As time passed, many people with hereditary links to this marginalized group still lived in the same historical areas. The word budakumin, meaning people of the village or people of the hamlet, became used to describe people from this area. For a long period, until the 1970s, koseki were publicly accessible to everyone. During this time, black books were compiled, listing various budaku areas and families connected to budakumin communities. As Professor Moro Suzuki alluded to, the accessibility of this document led to companies and families using this information and private detectives to investigate potential employees and discount those with connections to Hisabetsu Buraku. I asked Professor Moro Suzuki whether she believed this sort of discrimination still continues today. It was much more of an issue, I think, in the, maybe the 60s and 70s. And Japan has changed a lot since then, so it's become in a sense, more multicultural. And there's certainly many more foreigners living in Japan. And I think also attitudes to Hisabetsu Baraku groups have changed. But that discrimination has not gone away entirely. Now you get a different sort of problem, which is with online media, you know, people spreading rumours that so-and-so comes from a particular place or, you know, so-and-so pretends to be Japanese, but is really, you know, Korean or Taiwanese or something like that. Coming back to where I left off before, Renho eventually did release parts of her koseki at a press conference in July 2017. 
but emphasized she did this due to her position as leader of the party, and that this should not embolden future attempts to force people to reveal their Koseki information. Later in July, Renho resigned as leader of the Democratic Party, after a crushing defeat in the Tokyo Metropolitan Election. The controversy over her nationality was attributed by some to be a large factor in the party's defeat. The interesting question for me in this case is what degree people were outraged by the issue of nationality versus to what degree was this merely an issue of Renho not complying with some archaic legal condition? Here's what Professor Morris Suzuki had to say. I think it's a much wider problem than the problem of just having ticked a box. Um, and what comes out there is, I suppose, people's fears of the outside world. It often seems quite absurd because... The theory behind it is that if you have dual nationality, you know, your loyalties are divided and there might be some situation where you felt more loyal to another country than, than the country that you're representing in parliament. But it's pretty far-fetched, really. So I think it's more that it just stirs up people's general sort of suspicion of the outside world. And in the case of Renault, I think it was it was partly, I mean, there was an ele- element of xenophobia in it, I think, but it was also very much a political issue because the Democrat Party has been very much, the Democratic Party has been very much under fire from the right wing and the right wing media in Japan. And this was another way of getting at the Democratic Party through Renault. Mm. Right. The issue of dual nationality and the questioning of the citizenship status of politicians for purely political reasons is something that I fear will not disappear in Japan or internationally anytime soon. Last week, when putting together this episode, I saw in the news that an opposition member of Papua New Guinea's parliament accused the Prime Minister of being a dual citizen of PNG in Australia. In retaliation, it now appears the PNG Attorney General is set to review the citizenship status of all 111 members of parliament. All of this goes to a deeper question, I think, about what citizenship and nationality means in growing multicultural societies. The documentation of nationality is relatively a recent phenomenon, which I think fails to capture history, colonialism, and class, and in some cases furthers discrimination by othering sections of society. There is a lot to unpack in this topic, but I've probably done enough talking in this episode already, so now I'd like to open up this discussion to all of you listeners. We at The Monsoon Project would love to hear all of your perspectives and ideas around these issues. If you'd like to write for Monsoon, you can reach us through our email, contact at themonsoonproject.org, or you can tweet at us at monsoon underscore project. Thank you very much for listening. Hope to hear from you soon. Bye for now. <laughs>